invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. This morning we're going to continue in the study we began last week. And we're going to pick it up now in verse 5 going through verse 10. 1 John chapter 1 beginning in verse 5 going through verse 10. In honor of God's word I invite you to stand to your feet. As we read the passage together, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, that uh, I would be filled with the Spirit that I might proclaim the Spirit-inspired Word of God. And so I pray, God, that you would uh, glorify the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is always pointing to Jesus. I pray that the Spirit would point to you, O oh Jesus, all throughout this message. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for salvation. We thank you, Father, for uh, sanctification. But, Father, help us to truly experience this passage and this, this book the way it was intended which is to examine ourselves, to come into the light, to let the light shine on us to see whether we are of the faith or not. So I pray, Father, that your will and your purpose in this word would be fulfilled. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my uh, favorite art forms is uh, what the Japanese call Kintsugi. Uh, the, the artist, uh, and when he's doing Kintsugi, takes a, a broken piece of pottery and fills in the, the cracks and the flaws with gold. Uh, I, I have an example here. Uh, there's a bowl that has been cracked and, and broken and yet has been repaired with, with gold. It is built on the idea that embracing embracing flaws and imperfections, you can create a, a stronger and more beautiful piece of art. Now, I, I doubt the Apostle Paul had ever heard of Kintsugi, but what he says to us here in 1 John is very similar to that. But instead of pottery, John refers to people. People specifically in the church who themselves have been cracked and flawed and broken from sin. People who are full of imperfections. And John suggests that, that the way to heal this is to take these broken lives and to turn them into something strong and beautiful by bringing all of our sin and brokenness to the great artist, to God himself. The way is not found in hiding our flaws and cracks. It is to fill them with something incredibly valued. 
Here it's gold. With Christ, he fills them by the blood of his own life given in sacrifice for us, the precious gold of God's saving grace. So in many ways, God is, is a lot like a kintsugi artist. He, he invites us to, to come to him with our cracks and our breaks and our flaws, our sins, our deceit, and he will turn us into pieces of art that celebrate the work of the artist. The one who makes beauty out of brokenness. But as long as we attempt to keep those sins from him, as long as we continue to hide them, then we continue to remain broken. Pieces, shattered, unusable, unappealing, good for nothing. So the beauty comes from allowing our sins to be revealed in order that the artist may cover them was something incredibly precious. The gospel tells us that it's the blood of Christ. Now, in contrast to that, John's letter is also written to expose false teachers, especially the Gnostics that have infiltrated this church with lies that keep people in the darkness. And so here in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, what we find is basically an invitation to move from being broken and unusable because of our sins to become someone who is strong and beautiful and one who pays no heed to the lies of the day. Very relevant, very relevant passage there. John starts this invitation by showing us the, the characteristics of the artist, the divine artist. In verse 5 he says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This, this is a message, John says, that, that he has heard directly from Jesus. This isn't a message that he has made up. This isn't a message that you know the apostles got together and said, how can we kind of sum up everything that Jesus said? No, he got this directly from Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he records exactly what he heard. In John 8 and verse 12, he writes again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when John writes this, he's going, man, I... This isn't, this isn't me. Uh, this, is, this is Jesus, and we got it from him, and we're passing it on to you. So salvation here in this verse is pictured as moving from darkness to light. And sanctification, the progress of becoming more and more like Jesus, is pictured as walking in the light. And so transformation begins by seeing ourselves in God's light, in the light of his infinite, untainted, unfiltered glory. What does it mean, therefore, to say that God is light? Well, I think, I think uh, it's clear that God's glory is represented by the light. We're talking about 
his glory. We're talking about his holy perfection. We're talking about his absolute goodness. We're talking about that he is, is absolutely pure, untainted with anything. John got a glimpse of, of this at the transfiguration, right? You got the uh, uh, disciples, three of them walking with Jesus up to the mount. And all of a sudden, Jesus is transformed, transfigured before them. Matthew 17, verse 2 records, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Uh, I, did any of you attempt to, uh, to see the eclipse yesterday? Uh, apparently... You have to have a, a, a pair of special glasses. you got to pay in order to see the sun. And so you have to have these special glasses. I was driving around at that time, saw people in my neighborhood, and all got the special glasses. I, I gave it a shot. I didn't have special glasses. That's a mistake. I did have sunglasses on, but did you know that it's really impossible to look directly into the sun, apparently, uh, scientists tell us, I went back and did some research, scientists tell us that it, it takes uh, between 20 and 40 seconds to uh, receive permanent uh, eye damage to your sight. Uh, less than 30 seconds. Yeah, even if you, you attempt to look at the sun with these you know, you, you squinted eyes because you can't help but squint, and just kind of try to shade it out, shade out, you know, as much as possible. Uh, kind of like these lights right here, right now. But you have to uh, be able to, to do that uh, for as long as you can, and you just can't. You just can't, right? Because of the, the glory and the brightness. That's the, that's the illustration that, that Matthew said uh, Jesus' face shone like. It shone like the sun. Well, you know what happens, right? You know what happens after you attempt to look at the sun and then you look down and, and everything is darkened, right? Or you begin to have black spots all over the place. And I think it's the exact same thing when it comes to looking and beholding the fact that God is light. When you see him, when you look at his holiness and his purity, then when you look away at everything else, all you see is darkness. Or you see dark spots. Everything is tainted with dark spots. And that's the reality of the world. Everything is tainted with darkness by sin and the fall. So darkness then represents the absence of God. Uh, darkness in the dark, we can never see our sin properly we can never really see it for what it is we can never feel the weight of our sins and, and honestly the majority of us like it that way john three nineteen, the gospel of john john says this this is the verdict light talking of christ has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil 
Well, if we're doing evil deeds, then we want to stay away from Jesus because Jesus is light and therefore our evil deeds are exposed in his presence. So as long as we keep our sins hidden in the darkness, we will keep Jesus at arm's length and we will not see them for what they truly are, nor will we find forgiveness and, and cleansing from our sins. What we will have the tendency to do is to downplay them, to minimize them, to begin to make excuses for them or to remain secretive about them but when we see our sins in light of God's goodness and glory when we see our sins before him oh how filthy and rotten they are revealed to be and yet that is the only way by bringing them into the light that God the soul artist can say all right, now I can get to work. And so beginning in verse 6, going through verse 10, John gives us a test. We have nine tests throughout the book of 1 John to, to examine ourselves to see if we are of the faith. And so here we find the first of these tests. And the test is basically this. How do we deal with our sin? How do you deal with your sin? And he speaks of this in verses 6 through 10. If we say, he says, we have fellowship with him. While we walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now the first thing that we notice in this passage is the repeated use of the word if. If. It's there five times. There are five conditional clauses in five verses. Three of them are negative Two of them are positive. And what they do is they show us the difference between those who are walking in the light and, and those who are walking in darkness. Now, the, the negative clauses, the three negative clauses, all have to do with dealing with sin according to the way of darkness. If we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness. If we say that we have no sin. If we say that we have not sinned, right? That's hypocrisy. That's denial. That's, that's hiding. That's secret sin. This is dealing with sin in the ways of darkness. The false teachers that John is refuting in, in, in 1 John, they all say these things. They are people who have a profession of faith, but they don't have a possession of faith. They are the goats among the sheep. They are the tares among the wheat. They are the religious but lost. They are the unsaved church member. And there are many of those. By contrast, we have two positive conditional statements. And these two positive conditional statements show us what it is like to deal with our sin in the light. It's a totally different way to deal with sin. 
If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, if we confess our sins, honesty, openness, that's what it means to deal with sin in the light. This is how the saved deal with sin. And so what we want to do now is we want to unpack these verses, and I think the best way to do it is to unpack them according to each of these conditional clause statements. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin with the three negative clauses, and then we will look at the three, or excuse me, the two positive clauses. And we could put this section, we could label this section, how not to deal with sin. How not to deal with sin when we look at these three dark conditional clauses. Or we could call it walking in the darkness. And the first way that we see is what I call the way of the masquerader. The way of the masquerader. Now the masquerader is someone who is one thing but claims to be another altogether. Right? They hide behind a mask. The masquerader is a fake. The masquerader is a phony, a poser. Right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, And no wonder these people exist, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So we should not be surprised that those whose father is the devil himself would then operate or disguise or masquerade themselves as angels or people of the light. And so he says, if we, have, if we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that's the same thing as saying that we have a, a personal relationship with him. I have fellowship with God. I have a personal relationship with God. It, it's, it's saying without a shadow of a doubt, yes, I am a, a born-again believer. I am saved. But saying it does not make it true. One commentator I read said that verse 6 is the contrast between cheap talk and authentic living. There is a, a bit of a, a hypocritical boast. We have fellowship with him. But at the same time, we are walking in the way of darkness. The way of unconfessed sin. The way of hidden Sin. This is the person who wants us to believe that they are a good Christian when in fact they are living a double life. They have a secret life. And the poor soul is walking is a walking contradiction. Their talk does not match their walk. The masquerader says that they have fellowship with God. And perhaps in their mind they actually believe that they do. But fellowship, as we saw last week, is the word koinonia, and that word means to participate with, to participate. We participate in the Trinitarian relationship of, of love. We participate in God's work in us and in the world. So we can't simultaneously be walking in sin and have fellowship with God any more than you can claim that you got sunburned at midnight. They don't go together. Now this is not talking about a Christian who battles daily against sin. 
Right? That's all of us. We, we all have the struggle. The word walk, when it says walk, the word walk means a way of life, a lifestyle. Right? This, this person's way of life is not struggle. This person's way of life is to claim one thing but to be another altogether. So this person claims to be a Christian but is living in unrepentant sin. They are walking in habitual sin. There is a disconnect between their profession of faith and their possession of faith. They say they have roots in the gospel, but they have no fruits in their life. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, which is very interesting when you put it in its full context. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, Jesus says something we're all very familiar with. He says, do not judge. Man, does that, that's like the, the one verse everybody knows these days. Do not judge. You know, you, you have people who never step foot in a church, but they know that verse. Because anytime you say anything about the nature of their sin, that's what, psh, don't judge. Don't judge. And so Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged. Matthew 7, verse 1. But then... Just a few verses later, in the same exact chapter, he says this. Verses 15 through uh, 23. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Jesus says, don't judge. And then he says, but you can inspect the fruit. He goes on, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and your name drive out demons, and your name perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. So according to Jesus, judging people is not the same thing as being discerning. Right? The old saying is, is if someone shows you who they are, believe them. And so false prophets and, and false professors of their faith uh, can look like Christians on the surface, but Jesus says it's nothing but veneer because underneath the sheep's clothing is a wolf. And so they, evo- they, the, they evoke the name of God, but they don't actually know God, nor does God know them. He says, away from me, I, I never knew you. But we did all this stuff. I don't know you. Salvation is knowing, not doing. The word there is gnosko. If you recall from last week, there's two Greek words which mean to know. One is to know rationally, oida, and there is to know relationally, gnosko. So many people in the pews, or even behind pulpits for that matter, know God rationally, but don't know him relationally and so John says uh, in the passage that they are confessing the truth 
but they are living a lie. And he says specifically, they don't practice the truth. I love that. They don't practice the truth. He doesn't say they don't believe the truth. He says they don't practice it. There's a disconnect in what they say they believe that they give lip service to and what they actually practice. How they live out what they claim to believe. This makes sense. This makes so much sense. Out of uh, every year, and the, the numbers are getting much lower. Uh, and I would say they're not really getting much lower. They're just getting a little more honest. But these statistics that come out every year that talk about this large, enormous, huge percentage of American citizens who say they are followers of Jesus. They are Christian by faith. And the reality is this, there are actually very few of those numbers, we all know this, we all know it every Sunday morning, that there are actually very few of those people who claim to be Christians who are actually followers of Jesus. It's lip service. Now hiding, masquerading, is the original way humanity dealt with sin. We've been doing this for a very long time. Hiding. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. And what did they do after that? They hid, right? They hid from God and they hid from one another. By the way, the opposite of that is that you would have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And so they, they hid from God. They disobeyed God. And then they tried to cover up their own shame and their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. And again, it's our tendency to keep our sin hidden. To, to walk in darkness, to walk in hiding, to cover up our shame. We are terrified of being exposed. Of being found out. And so we reason that if people, man, if, if people really knew the real me... People knew what, you know, was really under, under the surface. And they would hate me. They would cancel me. They would hide their face from me. They would talk about me. And so we cover ourselves. We, we put on a, a veneer. I think of the woman at the well. I always seem to be coming back to her lately. Uh, why did she go to the well in the heat of the day when no one else was present? Right, Because she was filled with shame, and she feared being shamed further. And some, some of you right now are carrying around a heavy burden of shame, of, of hidden sin, of something in your past that haunts you and eats away at you. But there's a way to be free. Psalm 32, 3-5 says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's a, a second false way to deal with our sin. I call this individual the denier. The denier. Look at verse 8. If we say 
we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is the denier. Now, it's hard to imagine someone actually saying they have no sin. Only a fool would say that. But apparently, the Gnostics in John's day uh, actually taught the idea of sinless perfection. Now, today, in our day and age, we do denial a little bit differently, but it's, it's the same way of darkness that we see in John's day. Today, what we do is, is we simply deny our sin by redefining it. So we no longer say, you know, I've sinned against God. We say things like, ah, I really made a mistake. Oh, I really slipped up. My bad. Or we, we rename sins to make them sound less shameful, don't we? A person isn't lazy anymore. They are just simply motivationally slow. A, a thief is now a cost of living adjustment specialist. A prostitute is a sex care provider. John, uh, he pulls no punches. He says this is nothing but self-deception. You're not deceiving God. You're not deceiving anybody else. You're simply deceiving yourself. And the truth is that the problem, he says, is not in you. The truth is not in you. What he's saying is you are not born again. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't do this. We, we can deceive ourselves all the time. But he is talking about someone who says the truth is not in you. You are not saved. How could you be? How could you be saved? If you have no sin, as you claim that you have, then you don't need Jesus. You are claiming, when you say you have no sin, you are claiming to be saved, that you have saved yourself by your own righteousness and you are in equal purity with God himself. I mean, what would you need to be saved from? If we say we have no sin, we are minimizing it. We, we are saying uh, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe I have sinned, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there that uh, we all sin, and, and there's some people with some really big whoppers, and mine's just kind of, you know, the normal thing. But if we say that, if we minimize it, then we don't take it seriously, and we certainly don't battle against it. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, it's who I am. No biggie. We will not be like the saints of old who made battling against sin a matter of life and death. The great Puritan John Owen said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. The deceptor, the, the, de the deceiver, the denier is very deadly. It's more than just a li little bit of ignorance. It's fatal. Right? You, you, you don't fill your house with poisonous vipers and then say, that's no big deal. There's little snakes. And that's what we do all the time. And the irony is that you have not deceived God. You have not deceived anyone else. You have only deceived yourself. Well, there's a, 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 third, a third of the negative if statements that reveal the dark way of dealing with sin, and I call this person the pretender. The pretender. Verse 10, if we say 
we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The denier says, I have not sinned, I have no sinned, right? In other words, they refuse to call their sin a sin, right? But, but they, they refuse to admit guilt or, or take blame. Uh, the pretender, I mean. They, they always have an excuse to uh, finger point at someone else. They rarely take responsibility for their own sins. When he says, I, I have not sinned, he's basically going, I didn't do it. Proverbs 30, 20 says this, This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done nothing wrong. So the pretender is, is notorious, I, I think, for being what people call today the gaslighter. The gaslighter. This is the person they manipulate. They sin against people and then try to convince those same people that they are the ones to blame. Now, I wouldn't lose my temper and, and you know, act out if you weren't always making me so mad by blaming others or their circumstances, the pretender refuses to take responsibility for their own sin. They pay no attention to the plank in their own eye because they're too focused on the speck in everyone else's eye. I wouldn't have this plank in my eye if you would get rid of the speck in your own. John says that we have not sinned. When we say that, we make God a liar. How so? Because God says it is sin. And we go, nope. Nope, it's not. It's not. It's not sin. It's not sin when you have an excuse. And I got plenty of excuses. Right? Gambling can't be a sin if you're trying to pay off some debts. You can see the reason why. And on and on it goes. The pretender. John says this about the pretender. When you're a pretender, it's because God's word is not in you. Right? The word of God reveals to us the way of sin. And if his word is not in us, then we basically go, uh, that's a sin. Ignorance doesn't excuse anyone. Now, as I kind of step back, those are the three uh, negatives. As I step back and I look at all three of these wrong ways to deal with sin, I, I'm struck by two things. Two common denominators in all of them. First, it occurs to me that the common denominator in all of these three ways of walking in darkness come down to the issue of pride. Every one of them. Unconfessed sin is like a, a weed that just keeps on growing. So not only are you doing the things that you're denying, which is sin... Now, on top of that, you can add pride. So on top of what sin uh, there is, we have pride, and then we hide it. And hiding it is just, again, that's a form of pride. How is that pride? Because you're saying, you know, that, that I'm not going to expose myself. It's all about the self. 
I'm saying that pride is protecting ourselves from the evaluation of other people. And so we hide our sin. And we display an artificial fruit for the praise of other people. That's pride. So the, the masquerader is just as prideful as the, de the deceiver and the pretender because they are just as focused on self-preservation, on self-promotion in the eyes of other people without a concern whatsoever about how God sees them or us. Now the second thing I notice, second common denominator uh, in all of these false ways of dealing with sin is that John uses the pronoun we every time. Do you notice that? He certainly wants to draw a line between those who walk in darkness and those who walk in the light, but he is addressing everybody in the church. And it's as if he's saying, man, we're all capable of doing this. If we do this, it's, it's possible for any of us to do this not if you, it's if we do this. Of becoming false teachers because we believed a lie, we can find ourselves hiding, of deceiving ourselves, of passing the buck with the worst of them. There, but for the grace of God, go I. John says this is not a they problem, this is a we problem. And with every church, you have people who are walking in darkness. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 13 and 14 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And we saw that passage a while ago, but now look at it in context. There are many people who are disguising themselves as being followers of Jesus. So the way of Satan, therefore, is to disguise being an angel of light when, in fact, we're in darkness. And so John, he doesn't leave us wandering around in the dark. He doesn't just say, oh, well, there you go. He, he, in turn, goes, okay, so now that you clearly see how not to deal with sin, let me give you two positive Two positive if statements, two positive conditions, two proper ways to deal with sin. This is the way of walking in the light as opposed to the darkness. This is the way of the truly converted. And the difference between walking in the light and walking in the darkness is not that we sin. You know, one group sins and the other doesn't. No, it's seen in how we deal with our sin. And so let's look at the two positive statements. This first one is uh, the way, I call it the way of the encourager. The encourager. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this is the way of the encourager. Unlike the, the masquerader, the hider, who tries to keep from being found out, 
The encourager, by contrast, is out there. The encourager is walking in the light. It's not that he or she has no sin to hide. It's just that they choose to let their life be an open book. Warts and all. Right? They, they freely tell others about the, God's mercy and grace. They don't, I'm not saying they're out there boasting about how sinful they are. We call that authentic living. That's not authentic. No, they, they talk about their, their sin in light of God's grace. Notice how John puts it. He says, if, if we walk. Now again, this refers to a lifestyle. There's that word walk. It refers to a total way of life. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. Did you catch that? If we walk in the light as he is in the light. What an interesting phrase. Because John just told us that God is light. And if you say he is light, then what does it mean to say he is also in the light? Well, it means that in the light is where we find God. He isn't in the darkness. He isn't in the hiding. He is not in the deceiving. He is not in the denying. We will not find God there. But we find him when we stop hiding. We find him when we stop the self-deception, the lying to ourselves, that we come out from the double life, and we, we walk into the light. When we stop pretending to be better than we actually are, uh, to be more spiritual than we really are. We, we're afraid that if we come clean, right, not only that people will judge us, that, that God will judge us. You know, we're like, oh man, God, what will he think? God will judge me and he will shame me. But it's the exact opposite of that. Right? It's in the light where we find his embrace, his forgiveness. His grace is in the light, not in the darkness. His forgiveness and his healing is in the light. So we must run to God, not hide from him in our sin. So if we walk in the openness of the light, Notice the result. He says, we will have fellowship with one another and we will be cleansed from all our sin. Not some of our sin. How much? All, all of it. All of it. Now here's our word. We will have fellowship with one another. That's the word koinonia again. Now this time it's applied to the church just like he did in verses 1 through 4. Now the fellowship of the burning heart, that's what we called it last week, is basically this, that we will participate in the realm of the redeemed. We all have fellowship, participation with one another. We have all come out of the darkness. We all battle daily against the darkness. Why in the world do we come to church and pretend that we don't? It's mind-boggling, right? This is, this is how it works. This is how it works. We, we walk in the light. Warts and all, refusing to be fake, we enter into the fellowship of the like-minded, the equally forgiven, those battling sinners saved by grace. We participate in that. We participate in the lives of one another because we are no longer afraid 
of one another. We no longer feel the need to be actors before one another. We can just keep it real. We're just real people. This is why I call it the way of the encourager. The encourager. Because open and free people encourage the rest of us to drop our guard and to come out of hiding. Man, it's so refreshing. It's so refreshing to converse with someone with no guardrails up. Ephesians 4.25 says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood in ourselves, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And speaking the truth is not just basically going, oh, here's the truth, but it's speaking honestly and openly with one another. Putting away falsehood. Putting away, falsehood is just another way of saying hypocrisy. What is the source? What is the source in, in, in this kind of church of gospel community? What is the source of community? Right? That we all go to the same church? That we have similar political views? That we all grew up Baptist? Maybe we, we have similar taste in music. Maybe we have a, you know, a great this or a great that. This, I'm part of that church. They've got a great kids ministry. That church has cool programs. Oh, I like cool programs. You like cool programs? We have community. It's not community. No, our common life is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that we are fellow strugglers in a war against sin, Satan, and the world, and that we have all stumbled upon the miracle of God's grace. <laughs> That's who we are. Right? There, there are so many churches that are offering up a quasi-community based on all the wrong things and similarities. Right? Everybody looks alike, everybody dresses alike, that's not community. It's all superficial. Right? No one's talking about their sin. The only conversation is like, well, it's a beautiful day. Oh, how about them rangers? But no one's talking about their sin. No one's talking about their struggle. Everyone looks like their life is a display of light. But the truth of the matter is, is everyone is covering up their darkness. Where are the... Where are the churches with the ragamuffins and the rebels where they're all coming clean and admitting openly that they don't have it all together or that they don't have God all figured out? And that by God's grace alone and with a little help from their friends will one day make it home. I, I, I've never been to an AA meeting uh, but from everything I've read about them, they seem to come closer to what John's talking about uh, when it comes to gospel community than most, uh, what most churches are doing. Because, I mean, you can't even get started without confessing. Right? You can't even get started until you admit your struggle. Hi, I'm Charlie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Charlie. You're immediately welcome. 
AA is a place of acceptance. It's also a place of honesty. And yet, it's not like they just leave you in that state, right? Because the goal is we're going to push you towards freedom. We want you to be free. And so it's not just simply admitting. It's admitting with the point of allowing other people to enter into your life to push you towards freedom. We think, man, if people really knew me, they would never love me. And you know what? That's probably true. That's probably true in a community that has a surface level understanding of the gospel, which I believe most churches do. But if you find a circle of wounded healers who have stories of their own battles with the darkness and who themselves have experienced the light of Christ's mercy, then you can come into that group, you can kill your false self, you can be true and broken and loved. And the blood of Christ will fill all those cracks and flaws. The second, this is the second, or the last, there's only two of the positive if statements. And this one really drives everything home, I believe. If you want to deal properly with your sin, the only way that you can truly find mercy and healing and salvation is you have to be the confessor. The confessor. Look at verse 9. If, it's the last if, if phrase. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. That's the condition. If we confess our sins. Right? We have to do that first. And then there is a promise that follows. If you confess it, if you walk into the light, if you're, if you're honest about it, then there is forgiveness and then there is cleansing. And, and our guarantee is that God will do so because, as John says, he is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He's faithful and just. He's faithful Meaning you can always, always count on him to do exactly what he says he will do. And he says that he will take our sin and remove it as far as the east is to the west. And remember it no more. He is faithful. Secondly, he is just, right? He is just, meaning he doesn't just simply forgive based on nothing. He doesn't just, you know, you speak it into the air and he's like, you're forgiven. Right? His forgiveness is based on something in order to be just. And the basis of, for, of his forgiveness is the crucifixion of his one and only son. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And what that means is that death is the penalty for every sin. For every sin. I think some sin uh, are greater than others, but every sin is equal in its reception of the same penalty of death. Every sin, the wages of sin, all of them, is death. Why death? Seems extreme. Why death? Because all sin is against a perfect, holy God. And therefore the punishment must be perfectly just according to the standard that is God. And so every sin, therefore, is punished by death. 
Every sin is punished by death. There is no exception to the rule. Every sin. The question is, whose death? It will either be mine or it will be Jesus's when it comes to my sin. It will either be you or it will be Jesus when it comes to your sin. Either Jesus died for your sins or you're going to die for your sins. It is never costless. It is never unjust, this thing called forgiveness. It costs Jesus everything. Everything. David, the Old Testament king, knew quite a bit about sin. <laughs> He's kind of an expert. And uh, he knew all about its consequences. He knew all about cover-ups. He knew all about hiding. He also knew that the cost of keeping our sin in the dark is way higher than the cost of bringing it into the light. And so David uh, wrote this in Psalm 51. We read this at the beginning of our service today. But let me uh, just read again verses 9 through 12 where David says this. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Man, unconfessed sin results in the absence of God's presence. That's darkness. That's darkness. He says, no, I, I need your presence. I've been missing it. I've been, I've been hiding this sin, and I have felt so far away from you, and I, I just need to come clean, and I need, I need your presence again. And he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, we, we know, uh, theologically speaking, that as a believer, we will never have the Holy Spirit taken from us. But we also know that we can't grieve the Holy Spirit. And we can't quench the Holy Spirit. And we can't experience life as though the Holy Spirit had been taken from us. He's like, ah, oh, i got to have this back. I need the joy of my salvation. I miss it so much. Return that to me. Return that to me. When Jesus was crucified. Uh, it says that he was stripped naked. He was stripped naked. We know from uh, the day and age that to be stripped naked uh, was the Roman way of not only a painful death, but a, an exposed, embarrassing death shameful death because in Jesus's day the, the Romans didn't just want to execute you they wanted to shame you and in his day nothing was more shameful than public nakedness in fact before uh, the fall Adam and Eve were described this way they were naked and unashamed that's the, the state of being sinless. They were naked and unashamed. So after the fall, what did they do? They hid. 
They hid their shame. And so Jesus has been stripped bare and crucified. Meaning that he not only died for our sins, but that he also died for our shame. He bore our sin and our shame. In a culture where nakedness was absolutely shameful, Jesus chose not only the most painful way to die in order to cover our sin, but he also chose the most shameful way to die to cover our shame. Jesus was paraded through the city. He was stripped bare, paraded through the city. He was hoisted up in the air to face all of Jerusalem and all of his nakedness. And he did it for our shame. He says, man, you, you, you don't have to hide anymore. You, you can come out of hiding. I bore your sin but not only that, I bore your shame. That's amazing. Jesus paid it all. And the reason he paid it all is so that you and me could walk free in the light. In the light. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the fact that um, here in your word we, we, we find um, the false way to deal with sin. And I think every single one of us certainly tried, tried to hide sin. I don't think any of us could claim guiltlessness. But Father, what we have here is, 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 is something that feels a little uncomfortable because none of us want to be seen for our true selves. And yet that's the only place where freedom is available. And so you've invited us to confess our sins. To say against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and, and here they are. to confess our, our ongoing sin, our double lifestyles, our, our secret sins, to be set free. So I pray, Father, even though it's difficult that during this time of invitation that, that we might step into the light, I pray that your light would shine upon us Father, instead of running for the darkness, the cover of darkness, we would stand there and receive mercy and grace and your love. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we have a time of invitation this morning. If